Thank you for joining us today. We are delighted to have on the show with us today, Cullen Roach. Cullen is the founder and CIO of the Orcam Group, as well as Discipline Funds. He is also the author of Pragmatic Capitalism, the, uh, both the book as well as the blog site. And lastly, and most importantly, he is a handsome, smart, and proud alumnus of Georgetown University. Uh, and of course, we have Mike Green. Mike, thank you for taking some time away from uh, picking your various troll, uh, your Twitter fights with various CCP troll bots. And of course, Harley Bassman, aka the Convexity Maven, who's enjoying the best of life out in Laguna Beach, California. So at the bottom of the screen, we have a Q&A uh, button. Please use it. We'd love to hear from you. We'll answer your questions uh, during the conversation or directly. And then, of course, this conversation is meant to be interesting and hopefully entertaining, but is not meant to be taken as investment advice. So, Jimmy, will you throw up the first poll? That's where we'll start to get a read from the room. All right. So first question. What is the peak Fed rate? 5.1, 5.6, 6.1, or the first cut is the deepest? Meaning we're there. And then there's also a second question in there is when is the first Fed cut? So switching from rising to, uh, to actual cutting. So September 23, December 23, December 24, or whenever China says it's okay. All right. So, Michael, let the, let those settle in. And then... Uh, and number three, back. is Cullen actually handsome? I, I was going to say, is he actually a graduate of Georgetown? He seems far too smart for that. I was thinking we should go and repost January of this year so Mike can vote again. <laughs> oh, now, Harley, come on. That's not fair. All right. So welcome, Colin. It's it's actually a real joy to have you on. I don't know if you're aware of this. We got our poll results already. Look at that. Okay. So about 40% about of the audience, most popular, thinks that we are actually at peak already, that this was the last cut or last hike. Uh, and that we will about half says we'll be cutting by December 23. Wow. I'm actually surprised by that, although not entirely. Largely, it indicates Harley doesn't know what he's talking about, but that is that I'm actually a little surprised by that. What's your reaction, Colin? Um, I, I think so. I came into the year saying they were basically going to move to five and stick with it all year long. Um, I think they're going to end up I think they're going to probably end up hiking again. So they're going to probably end up at, I don't know, five and a quarter, maybe five and a half. And then I oh. think they're going to sit tight for, for a long time, longer than people expect. I don't think they're cutting this year. Yeah, I think that's going to be the interesting question. I mean, um, Harley and I talk about this a lot, right? My read is that the current pricing of the options of, of, of you know, the, the forward curve Harley does a great job of emphasizing this all the time. It's not actually a forecast, right? The market is not actually trying to say that it's going to be 450 in March of 24. You know, my, my argument would be that the market's kind of pricing 85% of the scenario you just laid out, right? Maybe a little bit lower on a, on a hike dynamic and about a 15% chance of what I actually think is going to happen, which is, is that something significant occurs that forces them to cut dramatically more, right? Yeah. So it's pricing a bimodal distribution as compared to an expected distribution. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's going to be the interesting. I, I don't see a scenario in which there's a single cut, basically, is I guess the way I would put it. That seems, yeah. that seems awfully I fine. Think, I think they want, they want to make sure absolutely sure that inflation is not coming back that there is no chance of like a 1970 style uh you know recurrence of like a reoccurrence of inflation so i think they're gonna they're gonna err on the cautious side and that means that they're weirdly erring towards the policy mistake outcome that you kind of like the longer and longer this goes on I think the greater and greater that 15% um, probability outcome actually increases. Colin, is it, a, is, it, is it inflation only? What if we have, we still are at 4% inflation, 
where we have unemployment up at four six, four seven, four eight. Would they cut then, or they still hold on and wait for that inflation to come down? I think it depends. I think it depends on you know how much other like are you starting to see like does the banking crisis kind of reemerge at that point? And are you getting a rising unemployment rate? I mean, the, this is the tricky thing with this data is like the unemployment rate can raise or rise for lots of reasons. Like are a lot of people just coming back into the workforce? Is, is the economy actually starting to show like real signs of fragility? Um, and so, and then you have the problem that like a lot of this data lags, you know, pretty significantly and gets revised pretty significantly. So that's my big concern with the way that the Fed is sort of playing all of this is that, I mean, personally, I think I think they've killed inflation, basically. I think that we don't see it yet in the data, but I think there's going to be a pretty a, a pretty persistent disinflationary trend in the coming two to three years. And it's really a matter of how fast does that happen? It's not happening as fast as the Fed obviously wants to see. So, you know, you're in the scenario where I think, disinflation is becoming more and more entrenched and the fed is playing this waiting game where they're sort of you know it's not totally clear you know i think i'm right but obviously a lot of people in the fed would say you know i don't know how cullen can have that sort of confidence about this um which arguably is the right take from their perspective because they have to be able to justify to policymakers everything that they're doing but you know it it depends, basically. I think that if you if you got a reemergence of like a bank panic and you started to see, you know, is the equity market down, you know, 30 percent and our credit spreads blowing out and the unemployment rate is at, you know, 5 percent by the beginning of of, you know, Q124. Um, then I think maybe the Fed is really, you know, in an uncomfortable position where they're starting to say, oh, crap, we got to backpedal on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I mean, I'm with you guys on uh, on a lot of these things. The bimodal, definitely. I mean, I think inflation staying at four for a very long time because of labor or lack thereof. Boomers retiring and lack of immigration keeps keeps service you know costs up, keeps keeps inflation at four. Could we be in a recession with it still be a four? Yeah, but let, 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 let's segue to like, what's your big picture view? Why don't you give us an outline of what you think of the world? My big picture view basically is that, so I think that the the whole COVID boom and the COVID recession was really just sort of the blow off top of like the previous 10 years. I think it was just the, it was the inevitable culmination of what was going to happen where you get just a massive overinvestment in a lot of different sectors. People overreact. Um, people are doing lots of stupid things in equity markets and crypto. And now what we're experiencing is sort of the digestion of that huge blow off where we're in what I've called sort of a muddle through period where I don't, I don't see this turning into like a 2008, but I also, I don't think that like an economic boom is coming back. I think that we're going to be digesting this potentially for, for several years. And so to me, this feels a lot more or looks a lot more analogous to like maybe a 1991 recession or like uh, even the, the 2000s recession where you actually don't get economic growth that goes really deeply negative. I mean, in 2000, we didn't even really get uh, negative GDP growth, but we technically had a recession back then. And I think that this could look like this where the all of the data on a year over year basis is slowing and the economy is is starting to really you know get hurt by especially by uh, the tight credit markets and that going forward creates an environment where growth is just very stagnant and you've got this embedded sort of disinflationary trend where you have rising credit risk and that's the that's the big risk with what Michael was alluding to with the you know, that 15% potential outcome where you get a credit event or something that is a, you know, a lot scarier than sort of the banking panic that we saw earlier this year. And this starts to look more like a 2008. And that to me, the longer the Fed stays really tight, the longer or the, the higher the risk of something like that happening is where, I mean, God, it, you know, like, like I said, I don't think this is 2008, but you could have 
gone all the way through 2007 and basically thought, hey, there is nothing wrong with anything that's going on in the economy. And in fact, of course, a lot of people, of course, were saying that and the Fed was super aggressive. And then, you know, everything kind of hit the fan as 2008 transpired. So, um, you know, that's where I kind of see the, the macro economy is just sort of digesting a lot of the COVID boom that occurred or the, really the the blow off of like the the culmination of just the huge bull market and a lot of the excesses that that we had and i think one of the things that makes this difficult especially from like a credit perspective is that these things just take time in large part because a lot of the credit market is just it's a it's literally a, a time function where these contracts they take time to roll over and have to be renewed and so you know, you're seeing this, especially with banks. The banks had a, a essentially an asset liability mismatch on their balance sheets, where you know that's a that's a time problem. Where as soon as the Fed raised rates so quickly, their balance sheets were impaired, and now what they're trying to do is their cost of funding has surged, and they're trying to roll over all of their all of their assets to the point where now. You know, instead of borrowing at three and lending at six, they can borrow at five and lend at eight. And getting the demand to borrow at eight, that's going to take a lot of time to roll over those balance sheets. And the the longer this plays out, you know, the more we're going to see these sort of, you know, excesses crop up in either the banking system or, you know, commercial real estate, of course, is a big risk. Um, consumer balance sheets are going to have to go through a lot of this. Corporate balance sheets are going to have to go through a lot of this. So it, it's going to take time. Wait, 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 was the, were the balance sheets really impaired right now? Like in 08, it was a credit problem. Yeah. You actually lost the money. Poof, gone. The money is gone. I'm not coming back. Here's a duration problem. As, as you, you call it a time problem, which is the same thing, I suppose. I mean, a duration problem is a whole different animal. I mean, if you didn't, if, if, if the government had basically guaranteed all deposits, you'd probably still have First Republic, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, I'm, I mean I'm just troubled calling it a balance sheet problem here. Mike, I mean, where were you on that? It is a balance sheet problem, Harley. I mean, we, we know what's actually happening here is that First Republic, with assets that only earned 2%, couldn't possibly pay 45 to 5 to compete with money market funds. Right. Yeah, but they, I mean, yeah. but they wouldn't, if, if they didn't have the, the deposit withdrawal, I mean, we don't have marked market accounting in the banking system. Right. But no, so, no I mean, I, it's kind I, of unfair to all of a sudden say we have it. But what we do actually have is we have deposits that cannot possibly earn enough. You cannot possibly pay enough to hold them against money market funds right now. Yeah. I, and I think that's the issue here is that, I mean, on a like a, a personal level, anyone, any household, that has owned longer duration bonds, I mean, they they may not have realized losses, of course, but they have unrealized losses. Their balance sheet is, I mean, maybe impaired is the wrong word, but their balance sheet is fundamentally weaker than it was a year ago. You know, just looking at like the snapshot of where they are uh, right now. So it, that... In the long run, does it matter? No, I mean, if you hold a ten-year Treasury bond and you hold it to maturity, of course it doesn't matter. But in the, you know, in the course of the next two to three years, I say it could end up mattering a lot in terms, especially from the the function of like consumer demand and loan demand. Yeah, I mean, I think you actually hit on a really, really important comment that I think most seem to be it seems to be missing from a lot of the discussion, which is this idea that in order for banks to roll over their asset mix to a higher yielding base such that they can actually afford to pay the rates on deposits that are currently being offered by money market funds. And that really is the problem, Harley, is we're seeing the deposit base being drawn down. I think everybody agrees with you on a hold to maturity basis, those mortgages are not an issue, right? No, I mean, the banks could have done, if they wanted to, some reasonable hedges. Most of their assets are floaters to begin with. And the stuff where you have like a, fi a five-year lock that goes into an arm, they could they could pay, pay fixed and receive LIBOR, and they could and they and their asset would go up and their funding goes up. I mean, it, it was so, the so so Harley in that scenario, who would have taken the loss then? Because somebody has to be on the other side of that trade. The market. Yeah. Okay. Fine. So the insurance companies would have blown up. No, I mean you 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 pay fixed on a swap. You 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 you. you I mean it's very easy to do. Something, but, but somebody has to. 
Harley, somebody has to take the other side of that trade. Yeah, okay. like that's that, so that, that's Ra- a that's so a really interesting one. From well, the like Fed, the, the Fed took the loss. The Fed would take the loss when they go and they buy. So, so the Fed. So so wait a second. So you're telling me that the Fed would have gone off and issued, you know, uh, interest rate swaps to the banks at the banks and said, hey, we'd really like to do OTC swap arrangements with the Fed. No, they would have done it over the entire time, not in one day. When J.P. Morgan Harley, took out, the Fed doesn't write swaptions. The, the Fed doesn't do payers. Mike, the the, the bank would, would do the swap, and then someone would do this, and 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 then they 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 do it versus a treasury, and then right. But you're missing out. a sum, you're missing a someone in there, Harley. How do we do trillions of dollars of swaps now? Someone's taking it. Yeah, an insurance company is on one side, and a bank is on the other, or a client is on the other. Corporate I think maybe a simpler way to think of this is like in the media in the last year or two, a lot of people have talked about these golden handcuffs that a lot of people have. Like, you know, right. I refied my mortgage at like two, five or something ridiculous that someone's on the other side of that trade. Yeah, you know, the it's Fed. Great. It's the great Fed took it. Me, but, but the Fed took it. Fed didn't take it all. The, what do you mean? It what, do you think trillion dollars. what do you think just happened to First Republic? They were on the other they side. Didn't hedge. They didn't hedge. Harley, they can't hedge in aggregate. Somebody else has they to can. Oh, all I know is this. Place, all the Wall Street I've worked at, they, we all hedged, okay? Every night we Again, were hedged up. I understand that, and Harley. I, and, and, and I made money doing it. I understand. That's why a bank couldn't do it. Harley, walk through the... Can- now, don't shrug your shoulders. Walk- I, I'm serious, Mike. You're missing something over here. No, I'm not. What Harley, happened I'm, is, I'm not going to go the weeds with you. Harley, Harley, we're destroying poor Cullen's brain. Okay. <laughs> Who is on the other side of the trade? What would have happened if the Fed would be because you'd go and give them the bonds, and what would happen is you'd have banks or Wall Street. You would see pay fixed on swaps. Swaps would widen down to treasuries, and then that spread. A bank or a hedge fund would take that on, lever twenty to one. Uh, once swaps got wide enough, and that'd be it. Like every other thing in the market, the market would would would, would move to accommodate the price. But what would have happened is you wouldn't have rates this low. You would have had rates higher. Harley, do the math on how much the move, the vol would have had to blow it out on swaps for you to be able to accommodate that at 20 to one leverage in a hedge fund. You can't do it. You would have had hedge funds blowing up all over the place. You can. When when, when when, when the 10 year swap rate went to like negative, whatever, 20 a few years ago, um, at that ratio with, with at the time current capital requirements, a bank could take that trade on. Yeah, you can. It's easy. I was telling you, man, I work on Wall Street Street trading desk. I know what you do. I understand that you're on a Wall Street trading desk. I understand also that you were offloading that risk to somebody. That's the whole point of what was happening prior to the- Oh, we'll go back to you to go talk about something else. I'll I'll explain how how Wall Street works to Mike someday. You you actually, yeah. Well, So so you actually brought up a really interesting point though, uh, Cullen, which is this idea of demand. And so I'm going to actually share my screen very quickly to show a Bloomberg chart. I just want people to actually see this. This is the senior loan officer- percent of uh, respondents reporting stronger demand for loans, right? And so at the higher interest rates, we're actually at global financial crisis levels in terms of demand for loans. Nobody wants to borrow at these levels. This is why mortgage applications are in the toilet. And yes, I know people are telling me they can still buy homes or sell homes. You can sell the fewest number of homes we've sold in years, right? The only sources of buying of homes is happening is subsidized new home sales in which the national home builders are offering teaser rates. There's no demand. There's no way for the banks to build back up their book of business in this construction. Cullen's right. Like if we can last here for five years, yeah, absolutely, we'll get there. And that whole time, the risks are, I think, exaggerated. Like I don't like to, one of the things I don't like about this whole like recession versus no recession debate is that you know, it, it creates this like binary view of all of this stuff. And that's not how any of this actually works. I mean, the, the rate of change, like a lot of the, the super optimistic people who have argued that the economy was, you know, just totally fine for the last few years are kind of ignoring the fact that there's deceleration across basically everything. Um, so yeah, are we technically in a recession yet? No, but the rate of change is slowing. And so you're, you're increasingly reaching this point of, of where everything is increasingly fragile. And I think that's the, especially looking forward, like, I mean, Harley said, 
sure, the Fed can take all the past losses and, you know, tuck them away. And, you know, they're on, they're very much on top of the banking system. So that's actually like a pretty important point in understanding why I don't think this is going to be 2008 again is because the Fed's not going to be surprised by anything that comes down the pike here. I mean, when, if something bad happens in the banking system, that's much more substantial, you know, they're going to pull off one of their four letter acronyms that solves a problem. I mean, they, they have all those tools on the shelves behind them and they're ready to unload them in an instant to make sure that the banking system doesn't blow up. But to Mike's point going forward, demand is just very low in this sort of an environment. And so even if your even if your balance sheet is fine, you, your income and your revenue relative to whatever your balance sheet looks like, it, it's just not going to be nearly as strong as what a lot of people have been, become accustomed to in the last few years, especially the last decade where you know all, a lot of this demand was built on a zero percent interest rate environment where you know those days are gone. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think you're. I, I think that a key part of the question that is missing is exactly what you're describing, Colin, which is the ability to rotate. Right. So we have, you know, we're all participants in a secondary market for the most part. Right. We actually get to see corporate bonds, for example, immediately reprice on a yield to worst sort of framework to today's interest rate, and so we can constantly refill with new assets that are coming in. And say, I'm going to go buy high yield at, let's say, seven and a half or eight percent right now. That allows me to cover the cost, assuming very low defaults, of a you know five percent Fed funds rate in terms of my, my source of funds. I can trade that spread as long as we don't have a credit event. But if I'm a bank, right, unless I take in a ton of new deposits that allow me to make new loans and that demand is out there. For me to issue those new loans or i go into the secondary market and now buy those mortgages and in the secondary market are marked down so that they're yielding that amount i can't rebuild my balance sheet i can't generate income and in the meantime money market funds are stealing my deposits mm -hmm. yeah, yeah especially I, and yeah, that's that's much more exaggerated you know, for the smaller banks than in the regional banks than it is for the big banks you know the big banks have the luxury of still you know, like I, I only bank at Bank of America and they, they pay me zero. I try not to keep a lot of deposits there, but Bank of America has a luxury that the small regionals don't. And the small regionals, they're, they're really being forced to roll over all of their liabilities at something closer to that 5% rate just because their business is inherently, um, I don't want to say weaker, but it's certainly not government backed in the same way that a Bank of America is. Because even with FDIC insurance, that's not the way their depositors view them. 100% agree. I mean, I, I, I just pulled up Wells Fargo, for example, which actually has a shorter term maturity profile because it does so much small business equipment lending, right? Their current book of business is currently yielding somewhere around 3.7%, right? There's no way they can pay 5% on deposits. And they'd be running a massively negative interest margin. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, if, if, if we want Wells Fargo to hold, you know, maybe a spread of three or 400 basis points, this is Colin's point, by the way, I bank at JP Morgan for most of my transaction accounts. They're paying me 0.01%. Why? Because it is the bank of JP Morgan, right? It is Jamie Dimon. He's going to be president for heck's sake. Right. Um, you know, what could be better than banking with your president? I had my last banking funds at the Trump. <laughs> um, yeah, good Mr. Bank. Exactly. He's he's so trustworthy. Come on. Yeah. Um, the But the, the underlying dynamic here is, is that they can't actually compete for those deposits anymore. And as a result, they're incredibly weak. I mean, I don't I just don't see any other way to frame it. So, all right. Harley's gone sullen, silent and I'm sullen. I'm not going to tangle with you about it. All I'm saying <laughs> is they could have hedged. It's a challenge to do it for accounting reasons, but let's, let's leave it a little bit. I will leave this thing. Whether they could well, have or not, Harley, they did not. And so we have not. to deal with the reality. Which, which actually the question is, why didn't they? And this is where moral hazard comes in. The, the, the Fed basically lulled everyone to sleep by promising they were going to keep rates at zero until March of 23, and they... They didn't lie, but they changed their minds, didn't tell anybody about it until afterwards. 
So, which, yeah. which, which is why I don't believe in the dots or, or any of this, uh, you know, podium pounding. The Fed should not be talking about what they're going to do in the future, at least not too far in the future, because it makes people do bad things. I mean, these banks did bad things because they thought they had a year and a half to, to wait. I mean, the guy promised almost that rates weren't going up till then. So um, hey, you're coming over to my side of the fence, Harley, this is scary. <laughs> All right. So, so Colin, so you see this weak demand for loans, you see this somewhat impaired banking system, whether their balance sheets are damaged in the same way as in the global financial crisis or not, is certainly debatable. And, and exactly to your point, if we were back in 2007, almost no one would have seen Bear Stearns coming for the very simple reason that we didn't know yet about the degree of fraud and the mortgage putbacks, which is really what took down the banking system, right? So mm -hmm. stuff that was off their balance sheets came back onto their balance sheets, leading to you know disastrous losses that were not actually even observable if you did not foresee the potential for those loans to be put back to them. Um, is there anything that you're seeing out there? We talk about the credit market. I just finished doing a podcast in which, you know, I highlighted that it's actually remarkable that we're seeing this degree of weakness and the credit cycle is just starting, right? We're seeing it in commercial real estate. What, are you seeing something similar or are you in Harley's camp and says everyone's hedged everything out? They could no. hedge everything out. You can't, I mean, hedge risk. you can't hedge credit risk. You can hedge duration risk. You can't, well, I guess you, you could hedge credit risk, but not really. You can hedge credit risk. We've, we've hedged credit risk in probably. That's a, that's a microscopic market, okay? Um, Duration uh, is. All right, okay, yeah. Colin, go ahead. The, the commercial real estate, obviously. I mean, that's the one that everyone is sort of waiting to, to blow up. Um, I mean, it's, it's, not as widespread as anything like the, you know, like the GFC was in large part, because a lot of this is, I mean, the commercial real estate space is a huge, huge market. So, um, you know, like the actual office component of all of this is not nearly as large and important as, as something like the, the residential real estate market. But the, I mean, that's why I, I don't really see like a 2008 occurring in large part because I just don't see that sort of like seismic credit event where, I mean, like in 2008, when home prices fell that much, I mean, consumer balance sheets were just massively impaired. So you had a huge credit crisis at the household balance sheet, as well as, you know, inside of the banking system as a result of it. And so, and I just, I don't see that outcome playing out here where you have like a, a huge household impairment on their balance sheets due to, you know, if, if I guess you could argue if real estate prices fall a lot more than people expect, um, you know, or, or, or other asset prices fall a lot more than people expect. I mean, hell, I guess commercial real estate prices could fall a lot more than people expect and you could start seeing big impairments um, there. Um, but otherwise, I mean, my general view is just that the, you know, that's why I kind of think this is just sort of this weird sort of muddle through environment where you don't really get anything too asymmetric in either direction. I mean, if I, if you held a gun to my head and asked me, where do I see the asymmetric risk? It probably would be to the downside. I would, you know, cause I'm just, I remember back in 2006, I was actually really, really bearish about a lot of stuff and, it took, I mean, God, not even 2006. I was probably bearish in 2005. It took three years before, you know, all my bearishness actually came to fruition. And, and I was not nearly as bearish as I should have been. And so I'm not going to sit here and be arrogant enough to, to say that, like, there's downside risk, but that there isn't something that is going to, like, come out of you know, nowhere. Because that's, it, that's usually the way this plays out, is that you don't actually see you know, the risk until it becomes super obvious. I think Morgan Housel says risk is what you, you, what you don't see. So, you know, there's, this is the sort of environment that I think is ripe for something like that to potentially occur. I don't, it's not like my base case or anything, but if I had to pick, you know, what is the, what is the asymmetric risk? It's that, the longer the Fed keeps things really tight and the, that the demand for the, you know, for growth just isn't there across so many sectors of the economy, 
the the likelihood of something coming out of nowhere and shocking us all, whether it, I mean, it could be it could be something that happens in China or you know Europe or you know some part of the corporate market that shocks everybody. I don't know. I mean, the household market. There's you know there's lots of places where credit disruptions could occur that will surprise people. Okay, so many of our guests are, I mean, are, are very smart, far smarter than me. Uh, but they, you know, they bloviate, you know, ideas, but you actually allocate real money. So without naming tickers, like where, where should we be looking? Where, where's the, where's the value uh, right now? Where, where, where are you directing your client's money to? Yeah. I mean, from a, from a big picture perspective, I think that the, the big takeaways that I would argue are important right now is that um, I mean, from like a global macro perspective, I think that the, I think the foreign inflation story is a much bigger problem than the domestic inflation story. So I think that on like a global central bank basis, I think that foreign central banks are much more likely to remain higher for longer than the, the U.S. central bank will. And so from a from like a currency perspective, I think that that bleeds into the actually weirdly the attractiveness of foreign currencies relative to the dollar. So and that so you'd want to buy an, you'd want to buy like an unhedged European stock portfolio. Yeah, I would prefer to own foreign equities versus domestic equities in this but environment, unhedged, like in the foreign currency, because you can get yeah, both. And and I would I would add that you know any sort of dollar hedge i think looks a lot more attractive in this environment things like like a lot of people who follow me for years would probably be surprised to hear that i actually own a chunk of gold right now because i i think that that is going to operate as a you know i don't view it as an inflation has I, I view it purely as a dollar hedge and so on a on like a, a relative foreign currency basis i view gold as being sort of the you know one of these currencies that either foreigners or foreign central banks will view as a dollar hedge and so um that's not just an inflation story that is just a pure um you know relative to the dollar play so gold foreign equities relative to domestic equities and then um in terms of like broader asset classes um I mean, I think bonds look, bonds, especially domestic bonds, look as attractive as maybe you guys have had much longer careers than I have. But over the course of my career, I mean, the last time you could buy a treasury bill at 5.4% was when, you know, I was a baby in this industry. So <laughs> last year, yeah. So, sorry, so you want to buy the front end. So I no, mean, you want, well, you want to buy six months on in. You don't want to buy tens or or further out because Mike wants to buy thirty years. Well, it, it depends. No, no, Mike is, I, no, Mike, is, Mike is fully loaded in levered twos. Let's be very clear on that. I want the front end. Yeah, so I definitely, I I definitely defer towards you know the the shorter end like like Mike would. But as a as an insurance hedge, I mean, I I like to think of thirty year Treasury bonds as like a form of of basically deflation insurance in a portfolio. So um, in the in that outlier scenario where the Fed ends up having to backpedal quickly, th that's probably a scenario where the equity market is getting its teeth kicked in. Corporate credit is probably getting its teeth kicked in. And the thing that performs well in that environment is a 30-year treasury bond because really? the Fed's backpedaling and you know the price of that thing is going. It's twos that are going. Mike's right on this one. Blood squirrel. We're, we're, we're just, I mean, so Cullen is highlighting an unlevered product, right? So he's searching the duration as compared to the level of the curve, right? So I, I, I think in that scenario, the back end can be higher. I think you're, you're going to rotate on the seven year point. I'm not sure I would go higher. I think it'll, I, I do think that the sevens tens is going to end up being the pivot point. And I would argue that the 30 is probably the worst position of the, the overall portfolio. But my gut tells me that the tens would materially shift down by about 100 basis points in the scenario that Cullen's laying out. And so you'll make money on all of them, right? You'd make 18 points on the 30, given its current duration. Um, but yeah, owning a, owning a 
an owning an intermediate bond portfolio right now is in my view, um, you're clipping what, you know, 4% and you've got a, you've got a call option on a, on an outlier scenario, basically. Well, if we have to go and start talking, naming names, I will tell you the best ticket out there is agency mortgages, hands down. You can, you can get five and a half percent with zero credit risk. And, um, it, 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 it's basically a covered call strategy. And if the curve steepens, those prices go up. Now they're at 175 over the curve. That's a hundred basis points more than their forever average. I mean, agency mortgages, period, best ticket on the planet. You, you could be you could be right, Harley. I mean, the question is how quickly does the duration disappear on those, right? Do we expect actually a refinancing wave? I tend to agree with you. I think that you're actually in a really interesting place for the distribution of those, particularly in the secondary market. You know, to Cullen's point, he's not going to refinance this two and a half because rates fall back to zero. Strangely, right? the, strangely, the duration will increase as we rally if the curve steepens, steepens. because totally. of the dynamic of the embedded option, which is very anomalous for a callable security. This this is one of many reasons why the genius of Harley plays through and simplifies products on a regular basis. Um, I actually want to show you guys another chart because it's actually, Colin, this is to your point. I, I, I want your reaction to this. I'm going to explain to you the chart that I'm showing you here. And my compliance team, by the way, is freaking out in the background because these are all <laughs> approved compliance charts. You can actually see this here. So what we're looking at here is the five-year forward dividend yield. I'm pulling in five-year forward dividend swaps. I'm comparing that to the price of the Euro stocks 500. So this would be your unhedged Euro stocks. And I'm then looking at a five-year German bond. Would you be surprised to know that the equity risk premium in Europe is the lowest it's been since basically 2009, 2008? This is actually suggesting that European bonds up here are yielding dramatically more than European stocks. So for your model to kind of pay off, and this is one of the reasons I push back on this idea, for your model to pay off, like Germany or Europe has to see an explosion of profitability and dividends, or we basically have to see it. I mean, that's basically what you have to see, right? You have to decide that 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 multiples are going to expand dramatically at the back end or something, which seems hard for me to see. Yeah. I think that the, my pushback on that would be that there is, there's greater risk in owning domestic equities than there is in owning the foreign. So it's not even like a, it's not even necessarily so it's the cleanest dirty shirt argument, really. You're yeah, exactly. You know, if you're if you're holding a gun to my head, forcing me to choose which equity market I want to be in in this environment, um, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't love the European equity markets, um, but I would yeah. argue there's more risk in the in the domestic equity market. You looked, at, you looked at Japan. That seems to be a very interesting place to be. I don't, I, to be honest, I don't do a lot of, um, a lot of individual country investing. Um, I mean, I tend to, especially, I mean, I don't know, my, um, my clientele is probably not, I mean, they're not really, I try to focus less on generating alpha in the equity component. The, I sort of view the, I mean, the typical investor that I work with is someone who is probably a retiree who has a pretty conservative risk profile and the equity slices that we own are really their complements to the core of their portfolio, which is really structured around generating, you know, income in, in bond sleeves. And then the, I try to emphasize that the, the equity component is just, it's a much, much longer sort of duration component that hopefully it adds a little bit of premium to the income they're trying to generate. But I don't I, I do not get too involved in trying to pick and choose the components. I mean, I don't even do on the equity slices. I don't even do a lot of like factor investing unless the unless the client really pushes back on me and has a preference behaviorally for some sort of factor. But I I tend to keep the equity stuff pretty, pretty like you guys would probably argue oversimplified to the point where I'm doing like market cap weighted. Um, the only deviation I even make from, 
from global market cap is that I would argue that like Vanguard Total World actually calculates the, the, the market caps of the equity market wrong. I would argue that, you know, they calculate it basically as like 60, 40 uh, foreign or domestic versus foreign. And I would argue that the, the actual, um, the real market cap is actually closer to like 40, 60, 40, 60, even though the investable is 60, 40. So that's the only like really big deviation that I make. Well, why, would, why do you argue that? I, I'm not disputing it, I'm just asking. If you look at something like Vanguard Total World, they have something like 60% in the um, in the U.S. market versus the foreign. Um, and the, the rationale for that is that that's the investable component, basically, that um, if they had to try to make a market in, the, in every publicly available stock in the world, they wouldn't be able to, to purchase the portfolio that I actually deviate towards, which is when you look at the, the actual outstanding size of the global equity market, the U.S. market is not as big as Vanguard Total World would have people think. It's actually closer to the, the inverse. It's closer okay. to 40, 60. So right. even though, you know, you can't buy, you know, like we can't buy China A shares or, you know, we can't buy the stocks that the Swiss National Bank has taken out of the market, um, I would argue that, so what? The, those things, they still exist. They're, they still have actually been issued. And I would argue that the you know, the, that means that the, the U.S. market is actually smaller than the way that Vanguard Total World actually builds the portfolio. So people end up with, people end up with, especially U.S. investors, they end up with more of a home bias if they buy something like that than I would argue they, they even should. So the, the reason, just so the audience is familiar, the reason the Vanguard is doing that has more to do with the dynamics of float weighted as compared to market cap weighted. This is a change that was made in yeah. 2004 for most indices. People have, that have listened to my diatribes on passive understand that this is one of the reasons we had the distortions in the dot-com cycle. Correcting that, I, 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 I'm, I'm mixed. I see both sides of the equation. I actually think that market cap weighting is fundamentally flawed, but that that in and of itself is is a totally separate discussion but so that's what you're effectively arguing you're saying that it should reflect the total market cap as compared to just the float adjusted components bingo yeah got it okay um now colin one of the reasons i learned about you a long time ago and started following your stuff is you were one of the very first to embrace modern monetary theory and you've had a bit of a change of heart around mmt and the way that you, you know, I think you kind of fall into a camp that's not dissimilar to mine. You say it's a reasonably accurate description of the way a truly sovereign fiat system works, but you don't like some of the verbiage that's used, like there is no real constraint on debt levels, that debt doesn't provide funding for the government, et cetera. Could you, could you, you know, expand for the audience maybe what led to your, you know, uh, Diocletian conversion or Constantine conversion, I guess it is actually. And, you, you know, what led you to change the way that you would think about these things? Yeah, so I first came across MMT probably in like 2008. And I think that especially during the financial crisis, a lot of the things they were talking about were especially pertinent back then. They were focused on the, you know, the way that the money multiplier is not going to have a, this hyperinflationary effect through quantitative easing. And they were emphasizing that fiscal policy needed to be much larger because monetary policy and especially quantitative easing is not as effective as a lot of people, especially a lot of mainstream economists think it is. And that's stuff that I, I if not 100%, I largely agree with, with those views in general. Um, I think where MMT, and this is part of, I actually misunderstood MMT when I first came across it, because it is, I mean, MMT is really, people think it's just like, you know, Keynesian econ on steroids, and it's really not. It is so much more complex than than anything like that, that it can be really hard to actually wrap your head around it. And it took me, it took me a while to realize, you know, around probably 2010-ish, 11-ish, um, I started having conversations with some of the founders and my big contention was always with their idea of a job guarantee. And I had, I didn't really fully understand 
the extent to which a job guarantee is an essential component of MMT. And I talked directly to a bunch of the founders and they, they said, well, the whole foundation of MMT is the idea that the government creates the currency. They're the currency monopolist. And when they create the currency, they inherently create unemployment. And the only way that that unemployment can be solved is by the government offering a job guarantee. And so the this is the, I think, core component of what MMT really is. It's not, it has much less to do with monetary policy and deficit spending and really everything to do with this essential concept of like, that the government causes unemployment and that the job guarantee is the thing that not only solves unemployment, but it's also their price stability mechanism. And, you know, when you dig into the empirical research on that, it's just, it's never been done. And there's, at best, there's very thin evidence to prove that a government can operate a full job guarantee program offering anyone a job when they, whenever they want it, and that this can this can solve for price stability. And so I think that's the main thing that I think people misunderstand about MMT. And it's the thing I misunderstood about MMT when I first um, kind of started writing a lot about it. And you know, there's other things that I have problems with, like with the I'm a big supporter of like the credit theory of money, which is basically that anything that can be endogenously created from thin air can serve as money in theory. Like you, if you create toilet paper and the federal reserve started accepting it as money um, you know, that thing would become money basically. And that's essentially the way that I view all money is that money essentially always becomes credit throughout history. And so I think the MMT people kind of, they take some sloppy liberties with the way that actually is communicated. And because credit is always funded, for instance, whether it's funded from income or whether it's funded from the belief that you'll have future income at some point because you have existing assets. I think MMT kind of gets a little sloppy with some of the language there where they say that like taxes don't fund spending. And I, I always push back on them and I say, well, sure, if, in a very sort of technical sense, if you consolidate the Fed into the treasury, you can argue that the government doesn't really, it doesn't need its own money, but it definitely benefits from the aggregate economy having more capital. Because anytime the, the aggregate economy has more capital, you have greater potential credit creation because you have more resources that can support more credit creation. And so, you know, I think they're, they're pretty sloppy with a lot of the language. And I think that leads to a lot of confusion and a lot of, you know, debates from people that are largely counterproductive as it pertains to um, understanding the way that a lot of this is actually useful in a, in a more like either macroeconomic or, or really a, an investing sense. But so the, you come from the dark side over to the other, like, like, because the original MMT was proposed by Karl Marx, implemented by Stalin. So I'm just curious if you're still there or not. Yeah. <laughs> well, God, I wrote a book called Pragmatic Capitalism. So I, I hope nobody confuses me with Karl Marx. But um, no, the I think that, and it is, it's weird. I think a lot of people they go out of their way to to distance themselves from from Marx and more sort of, I think, socialist style programs. But there are a lot of MMTers who are there are a lot of MMTers who will tell you outright they are, if not they're they're socialists, they are virtually communists. Um, sure they are. And, uh, that, that's okay. You have an opinion. But I, then there's it just... but it's weird because then there's guys like Mosler who like Warren Mosler is. Um, I mean, God, Warren is, Warren's a great guy, super, super nice, super, super intelligent. Um, I mean, has run hedge funds his whole life. Like this guy is, this guy is a capitalist through and through, but he you really- You can be a Democrat and a capitalist, by the way. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but Warren really believes that this is just the way the system works. He really believes the government causes unemployment and that therefore the government is the only entity that can solve the unemployment unemployment problem. So I would argue it's it's messier than that. I would argue in a lot of governments. I'm not going to make politics too much with you, but the core idea was the government will print money until we have inflation, and the government will take away the money to go in and push back. And as I've said, we have the inflation, 
and the government printed more money. So, you know, the fact that, I mean, don't you have to admit it doesn't work? It's pie in the sky. It sounds good, but the reality is it doesn't work. So I mean, people the, aren't going to do it. The way, the, I mean, look, the way I've described it all along, and Warren is actually one of my good friends, and he and I spoke yesterday, actually, when I sent him a message, I said, hey, you know, let's get on the phone and and, and resolve this disagreement before, uh, you, you know, as, instead of going back and forth on Twitter, and he sent me a message back, he said, I didn't realize we were disagreeing. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's actually, um, you know, part, part of the problem is, is I think a lot of people become very dogmatic about this stuff. And yeah. to Cullen's point, it's very quickly embraced by people who have particular objectives, many of which involve significant expansion of the public sector, right? I, I'm very much in the Warren Mosler camp that says it is actually a reasonably good, if not accurate, description of the way the system actually works, where the government is the primary creator of currency. You then have secondary agents in the form of the banking system or credit provision that also is creating an increase in the quantity of money. And your limitations are ultimately a function of the real resources, people, opportunities to invest that are going to act, you know, going to actually return profitable returns, et cetera. And occasionally the system goes awry where too much credit has been extended relative to the productive assets that creates an inflation initially and then creates a deflationary pulse as we discover that the investments that we made don't return the, the dollars that we expected them to. Um, so I, unfortunately, I think we're on the back half of that now. I think that's almost what Cullen and I would suggest is happening when you start talking about the credit channel being impaired in the way that it appears to be impaired now, both from a demand and a supply side. Yeah. Um, I, I, I also agree with Cullen, though, that like, you know, I would use the language differently. I would actually say that taxes are absolutely necessary, but their role is actually to soak up liquidity effectively preventing too many dollars from being in distribution. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to offer a bond, which ties the money, a bill or a bond, which ties the money up in unproductive activities for a period of time so that you can't respend it. Right. Yeah. Um, now the, that, the, that's one of the, I think one of the interesting things with a lot of the MMT advocates too, is that like I would describe it as basically a permanently pro-cyclical policy approach. There is no, like in the last few years, they've proposed virtually zero counter-cyclical policies. Like I would argue that, you know, to actually pull that money out of the economy, you've got to run basically a government surplus at some point. And I mean, all through 2021, at least every MMT advocate that I've read, you know, they were saying inflation is not a problem. And we should just keep pumping, pumping, pumping um, because we've got the opportunity to do it right now. And so I just- it, And that worked real well, didn't it? it it's, a, it's a huge worry with the way that they think about things because especially you know, in the United States, do I think that we could operate a full-scale job guarantee? Probably because we're the richest country in the world by a huge margin. And I think that that's not gonna change anytime soon. But if you did this in- you know, like if Italy, uh, if they brought back the lira and, you know, left the eurozone and then started a full MMT program, I bet their economy would blow up within 10 years. Um, so it's just. Well, that, that, that would be standard operating practice for Italy outside of the euro, right? So <laughs> it, it, it was a pretty accurate description about every 10 years, euro, Italy would enter into a cycle <laughs> of, of inflation and debasement. Um, yeah, so, it, you know, it's interesting. Um, I also think, I, I just want to emphasize, and again, you know, I'm very close with Warren. I think the job guarantee is often misunderstood, right? We actually have a job guarantee program in the United States to the extent that Warren is talking about it. It's called welfare, and it just means that people actually don't have to work to receive the money that they require in order to live. It's available for some, less available for others, but that's, you know, what you're talking about with the job guarantee is effectively that the government sets a price at which they will subsidize the private sector's provision of uh, accumulation of labor, Yeah. right? It's not really that the government is going out and saying, okay, we have nothing for, you know, there's nothing for you to do. So why don't you go become a neurosurgeon, right? And we're going to, we're going to provide you with the funds of being a neurosurgeon. It provides effectively a subsidy at which point, if you are the world's worst at something, you will still be able to be employed by somebody because the government will pay 99% of your wage, right? Um, 
that you know and, and again i'm not really defending it i'm just articulating that's the argument behind the jobs guarantee it's not really the equivalent of universal basic income or welfare which actually most mmtiers should argue is anathema to the system because it's paying people for not contributing resources right yeah. that's that's the true crime under an mmt framework i mean it's um, it sounds beautiful in theory you know give everybody a job and we won't have inflation um i would just i would love to see this actually implemented at, especially at the scale at a living wage that they propose i mean like well, the, the, the problem is convince Cuba, the canadians Argentina? to implement this so they can you know they can right. be our our sort of uh you know, the testing but, ground but, for this by, and by the way, potentially right. blow up their own economy first before right. we just so, go so, and do this. So to, be, to be very clear on this, right? I mean, a job guarantee under the framework I just des des described is what the earned income tax credit is. It's also the debt, you know, it allows people to work for less than a minimum wage or less than a living wage because the government will subsidize them through an income tax credit. That's direct to the individual as compared to the employer. The other side of that equation is the negative income tax dynamic of Milton Friedman, right? So if you actually um, are incapable of generating enough to pay income, they will actually, you know, give you a negative income tax refund to build you up. But again, that's the 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 idea behind the earned income tax credit. And so if you attach Milton Friedman's name to it, there tends to be less concern than when you're attaching various names of, of pseudo-socialists, right? But it is ultimately, I think you're hitting on one of the points that is really critical, which is that most economic models assume this aggregate thing called labor and fail to consider the differential skill sets, the differential geographies, et cetera, right? If the government creates this incentive and provides it in West Virginia and in California, then there's very little incentive for me to pick up and move from California to West Virginia. There's very little incentive for the transfers that have historically accompanied our society to occur, it leads to an inefficient allocation of resources under even the best of models. And so that's actually part of the reason why I broadly describe it as you know, descriptive, but not prescriptive. It doesn't actually tell me exactly what I should do. It just gives me a pretty good idea of the impact of some of this stuff. Now, the reason why I actually was bringing this up though is, is in part because we now have this dynamic of the TGA right? And the refilling of the TGA. And I've described this elsewhere as very similar to an, a strategic petroleum reserve for the U.S. Treasury, except instead of petroleum, it's money, right? It basically puts money into the coffers of the government. Theoretically, when it's spent down, that's providing liquidity because it's creating spending that is not being sterilized by taxes or debt issuance. But when you're rebuilding it, you're actually soaking liquidity out of the system. This is something that's directly ahead of us. Colin, have you have you given any thought to, to how to think about what's going to happen with the rebuilding of the TGA? Yeah, the I think of this sort of as being really similar to the the debates about quantitative easing. I think that a lot of people will, and you kind of get back into the whole binary bias problem where people will pinpoint like one factor and then they'll say, you know, quantitative easing does this, therefore you're going to get hyperinflation. And aside from like the operational misunderstandings with QE, um, there's just, there's so many other factors that matter. Like people love, especially on Twitter to like take the balance sheet of like the Fed and overlay it with something like the S&P 500. And then, you know, I see this chart and I'm like, well, why didn't you overlay that with corporate profits? Like, how do you explain the corporate profits, you know, record that's currently occurring? You know, there's there's other factors is the point. So to me, the the I mean, the government deficit going forward um, is it's not it's not unusually small. It's not unusually large. So I kind of view I'm kind of ambiguous to to the way that that's going to necessarily impact the economy large? going forward. Did you say it's not unusually large? We haven't had well, as, a, as a percentage of GDP. a deficit like this, a proportion of GDP since World War II. It, it was off the charts. As a percentage of GDP right now, we're at, I mean, depending on the time horizon, you look at this over, um, you know, we're back to like, you know, 2020. 2046. 
Well, oh, well, you're talking about the national war. debt as a, yeah, oh, the, I'm talking, sorry, I'm talking about the deficit as a percentage of GDP, um, the amount they're actually spending every year. So it's not, it's large, but, and a lot of this is being impacted by weird factors like the student loan repayment thing. So you can get into all sort of like calculation, you know, debates about how we're actually calculating the deficit this year versus previous years. Um, it's, to me, I think there's other factors. Like I would argue right now that the demand for consumer credit is if you're gonna if you're gonna be worried about one singular factor, I would argue that the 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 demand for consumer credit right now and the the demand for mortgages and things like that is a much, much bigger factor in all of this going forward than something like, the TGA or the, you know, what's going on with quantitative tightening or anything like that. Okay, so we're wrapping up over here. So the, the, your portfolio is going to be a bunch of six month to, to one year bills, uh, a few gold bars in the, in, the, in, in the safe, and then world equities, like non-US equities. That's kind of the idea, which I have no problem with. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably not, I mean, aside from, you know, my like I like I'm the 100% owner of my own company so I would argue that like my my real investment is in what I'm trying to build is like my my company you know the real estate I view as like a sort of like an inflation hedge so I would view my house as like an inflation hedge my mortgage obviously is like the probably the best inflation hedge that I ever bought without even you know thinking of it as an inflation hedge um but yeah going forward I think that um in general I I have basically, I think, you know, God, I own, I own a probably way more treasury bill than, <laughs> than I should. Um, but I, I also, to be clear, like I tend to have, I think in large part, because I have so much of my own personal assets tied up in my company, I tend to view my other, the rest of my asset allocation as much more conservative. I love having just a lot of certainty in, you know, either short-term bonds or cash. And I hold- You're supposed Like if I hired you guys as my financial advisor, you'd probably look at my portfolio and be like, Cullen, you're, you're 42 and you've got a lot of runway left. Like, what are you doing with you know, a third of your portfolio in bonds, even like it's, it doesn't I, make I would, sense. I would never say that because I'd already know you'd gone to Georgetown. So, the, <laughs> so, uh, so, all right. I actually asked, uh, I asked my team to quickly pull together a poll here. Um, and I want you guys to, to, to quietly place your own votes here. So the first is in 2007, how much had us home prices retreated by November, 2007, when the GFC began pick your, Audience, please vote. We'll see how much of our audience we've managed to lose with our diatribe. <laughs> Dialogue, not diatribe. I, I do diatribes. Harley does diatribes. Cullen contributes rational thoughts. Okay. Do you follow me on Twitter? I do, of course. <laughs> I've been following you for years. Man. I know, I know. I'm kidding. I, I, do, I do more than enough diatribes on Twitter, though. That's right. All right, so we got we got fifty eight percent of the audience saying five percent. What did you guys think? I said five, but I really don't know. Colin, what would trick, you get? Here's a trick question. By November of two thousand and seven, um, yeah, I probably would have guessed about five, five to ten. All right. So that's actually that's actually exactly correct. The audience and the panelists get it right. Okay, let's go with the next one which is how much did they ultimately fall by? National? Can we National, can we pull that up, team? There we go. So we got the 5% already. Now if we do the second one, how much did they ultimately fall by? 10%, 20%, 30%, or 40%? If you guys want to change your vote now that everybody knows that 5% was the right answer for the first one, feel free to vote again. This will be like a uh, online college quiz. We'll see if everybody cheats. All 
Uh, there we go. Oh, look at that. Everybody got the right answer this time. Fantastic. Except for some people out there, that 3%, you're either very honest or incredibly <laughs> stupid. Um, those are the Georgetown so, people. Yeah, those are Georgetown. <laughs> that makes me so happy. All right. So actually, the audience gets it right again because the actual answer was 27%. So split right down the middle of the 20 and 30. Well done. All right. One last question. How much are they down now? You guys can toss in your guesses here. What do you think, Carly? How much are they down now? Five. I don't know. What would your guess be, Colin? Not much. I, I think I know the answer only because I looked at it recently. The Case-Shiller 20 is down, I think, five, and the National is down, like, three and a half, I think. Yeah, you're all, you're, you're, you're exactly right. So now we're going to cheat, and we'll see. But I, I shouldn't have said exactly right. Let's see what we got. Zero percent. That's what most. That would have been my guess, that most people think that they're actually up to, um, to unchanged. So they're down about 5%. So we're actually looking very similar to the levels that we saw at the start of the GFC. We've even, the one thing that we have seen is a turn up. And the key difference there, and this is the point that I would just raise, and it goes somewhat to the question that Cullen pointed out. You know, what we haven't seen is the distress sales because we have not seen unemployment rise yet. And that's gonna, that for me is gonna be the real question of what happens next, right? Because if people start losing their jobs, then we're gonna end up seeing houses come onto the market that do not want to be on the market. That's a very different animal than what we've seen so far. That's gonna be the interesting thing. Yeah. Brian is here. That tells me that we are at wrap up point. Um, this has been a spirited discussion filled with Harley's mistakes and Cullen's insights. <laughs> um, Brian, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you pick it up again. All right, guys, that was an awesome conversation, Colin. Thanks for joining us. And thank you everyone for, for tuning in. We appreciate it. If you'd like more information on Cullen's work, please visit fragcap.com. And of course you can find us at uh, simplify.us. And then next month, Mike and Harley are going to welcome economist and technology entrepreneur Pippa Malgren. So it's definitely going to be an entertaining conversation that you want to call in for. So thank you everyone for joining us and have a great afternoon. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for information informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.